The good news, we're going to get to of the gospel in a second. The other good news is that they are going to turn down the AC. So just know that is coming. Reprieve. Rescue is on the way. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about, in our series through New Testament theology, we're going to be talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, Very excited about this. I love getting to teach like this. Uh, I have trouble sleeping on Saturday nights if I know I get to teach the next day. You can ask my wife. It's really weird. I'm like a kid before Christmas. But really excited about this. Just to recap what we've done so far, uh, we started with intertestamental history, and we just talked a little bit about some of the things that are going on right before the time of Jesus' ministry. We talked about what is the gospel, that the gospel is a bigger cosmic message, all right? So what I said was that the gospel was, and we looked at several passages, the gospel is the kingdom of God. It's this big message that God is king, and when God is king, everything goes well, that he is reconciling the world to himself, he is fixing the cosmos. We are not waiting for Jesus' kingdom, we're waiting for it to be finished. We're waiting for the consummation of that kingdom, but the kingdom has already begun in Christ. That's why he cast out demons, that's why he heals the sick, that's why he's raised from the dead. The end has broken into the present in Jesus. And I said right at the heart of that. So if the kingdom of God is a circle, it includes peace and healing. I know you can't read any of these words because they look like they're written in Hebrew or something. That's English. Uh, Healing and peace and reconciliation and the devil's defeated and life and forgiveness. But right in the middle of this message of the kingdom of God is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is how Jesus wins his victory, all right? is through living the life we should have lived, dying on a cross for the punishment we should have taken, and being raised from the dead. And then last week, we just gave you more information than you could ever possibly handle. It was like drinking from a gushing fire hydrant, as Jeff was up here, talking about the Trinity and talking about Christology, the person of Christ. And he did a great job summarizing really what we're saying when we talk about the Trinity and we talk about Jesus. There are just several concepts that the Bible affirms. It just doesn't tell us how they all fit together. And our job is not to deny those concepts just because we don't know how they fit together, all right? But those concepts were that there is only one God, all right? He consists of three persons, and each person is fully God. Jesus is not just like 33.3 repeating percent God, all right? He's not just like God's arm. He's God. Whatever it means to be God, it's him. He forgives people for their sins. People worship him. He's said to create everything. Same way with the Spirit. The Spirit is called the Lord. The Spirit is called God, all right? To blaspheme the Spirit is to commit an unforgivable sin, Uh, And then when it came to the person of Jesus, again, we don't know how they all fit together, but we see that the Bible does affirm these four points, that Jesus is one person, all right? He's not schizophrenic or something like this. He has two distinct natures, and those natures are that he is fully God and fully man. If Jesus is not fully God, he cannot save you. Only God can save you. If he is not fully man, he cannot live the life you should have lived. He cannot die on your behalf. He has to truly be God to save you and truly to be human to represent you. So whatever it means to be God, he is. Whatever it means to be human, he is. Everybody with me so far? This is just a recap. Now, today, we're going to talk about just a great cheery subject, death, all right? We're going to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and what that accomplishes. Some of these lessons will be new content for you. For example, when we did intertestamental history, most people don't know a lot about that. However, other parts of these lessons that we're doing will be something that you already know and our hope is just to go deeper. That'll be what today is. I mean, I think you guys have heard something about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we want to go deeper on these things today. So let's start talking a little bit about Jesus' death, all right? In this message of the kingdom of God, how does God reconcile the world back to himself through the sacrifice of his son? So let's talk a little bit about death. Let's talk about death in the Old Testament. Death is not natural. Mankind was not originally made to die. Sometimes we treat it like it's natural. 
We say that it's a part of life or it's the end of life or the only thing for certain is death and taxes and things like this. But death originally for mankind was not meant to be. Death came as a result of sin. The day you eat of this, you will die. The idea is presumably not before. And so we need to realize when we talk about the death of Jesus that we're already stepping into a world where death is seen as God's curse on humanity. It is seen as God's punishment on humanity. God is the source of all good and all joy and all life. And when we walk away from him, the result is the opposite of those things, which is death. Okay? So keeping that in mind, and also keeping in mind the Old Testament background of sacrifices. All right? In the Old Testament, there's all kinds of sacrifices. There's Thanksgiving offerings, and there's grain offerings. And one of the big offerings that's constantly mentioned is some type of sin offering. You, ha- you and I have rebelled against God, and so we need blood to be shed on our behalf. We need atonement to be made on our behalf. So you would take your little lamb, fluffy, and you would take it to the temple and you would lay your hand on it because you're identifying the gift with the giver. And as that lamb is sacrificed and as that lamb makes atonement and as that lamb is consecrated, you are seen as clean. You are seen as having atonement made. You are seen as being right with God. That's the background for this Old Testament view of Jesus' death. So with that in mind, if you'll look at your mini encyclopedia packet I've given you, we'll start with the first point here, and it's this that Jesus died for our sins, okay? The Bible clearly. Now, you might already know that, but I want to give you some biblical text. I want to give you some reasons why. Not just because grandmother told me that. I want you to see in the text why this is important, that Jesus died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. John 129, the next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming and said to him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew 121, she will bear a son. This is talking about Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So the first thing I want you to see about the death of Jesus that the Bible clearly proclaims is that he dies as atonement, as one who uh, is making recompense for our sins so that we can have a right relationship with God. Okay? Now let's talk about some reasons. I, I think every, if I said in here, who in here thinks Jesus died for our sins? Everyone raise our hand. Let's now look at some reasons why Jesus had to die for our sins. Okay? Number one to uphold the justice of God and appease his wrath towards us. Exodus 34, 7, talking of God, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on their children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Okay, why does Jesus have to die for our sins? Why can't God the Father just say, you're forgiven? Why, he, why can't he just wink at our sins and just forgive us? Can't he do anything? Is he not God? Why can't he just say he forgives us? And the reason being, according to multiple texts in the Bible, is because if God just lets our sin go, he's unjust. He's unjust. Let me give you an example. Let's say somebody breaks into my house, uh, heaven forbid, but let's say somebody breaks into my house and they end up harming my wife and child. They end up killing Katie and Judah, all right? And they're sitting there in court facing trial, and the judge says, are you really sorry? And they say, yes, judge, I'm really sorry. And he says, you know what? Go free. I want you to go free. I'm a gracious judge because I'm so loving and I'm so gracious. Walk out the doors back into society. What's the problem with that judge? He's unjust. His job is to uphold the law. God is very, very, very loving, but not at the expense of his justice. Love does not win over God's justice. 
Justice is just as much a part of God's nature as is love. And so the first reason that Christ has to die for our sins is what's known as penal substitutionary atonement, meaning God, because he has said he won't leave the guilty unpunished, has to mete out punishment. I've sinned against God, yet I haven't been punished. So either God is a liar or someone has taken that for me. And what Christ does is he takes that punishment on my behalf. All right? By the way, just to encourage you, if you are a Christian in here, God never has any wrath towards you anymore. He never has any hatred towards you anymore. He will lovingly discipline you, but with discipline, it's because you love someone. So if I have to discipline my son, it's because I love him and I'm trying to protect him from bad things. Wrath has to do with just pouring out the bad stuff. God has zero wrath towards you because he has poured it all on Christ, okay? Second reason. Why does Jesus have to die for our sins? Number two, to fulfill the scriptures, all right? To fulfill the scriptures. Mark 14, 49, every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has happened, uh, I'm sorry, this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Acts 2, 23, this man, talking about Jesus, determined over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Just a quick comment on this. Every time around Easter, there's a big debate on who killed Jesus. You'll see this like on TV and on the news, and some people are saying it's anti-Semitic to say that the Jews killed Jesus and all of that. The answer is there's a lot of people that killed Jesus. The Romans crucified him. The Jews called for his condemnation. In a sense, we killed Jesus because he died for our sins. But the ultimate hand providentially behind all of that is God. God killed Jesus, all right? That's what the Bible's going to say. This is part of God's plan, predetermined plan. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, or by his stripes, we are healed. We are healed. So the second reason Christ dies for us is to fulfill the scriptures. All right? Everybody with me so far? I know there's a lot of text. There will be time for questions uh, at the end. Number three, to show God's love for us. To show God's love for us. Listen, God put his money where his mouth is on the cross. How do I know God loves me? How do I know that he cares for me? It's not based on some subjective feeling that I have. It's based because I can look objectively and see that he sent his son to die for my sins, and that's how I know. He's written it in blood. He's written it through death. I love you that much. God puts his money where his mouth is on the cross. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us, talking about Christ's death. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Okay? Grace is not unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. God sent Christ to die for his enemies while we were still his enemies. That's amazing. These are people that are rebellious and sinful and evil and hate me and want no part of me. That's when I'll send my son to die for them. He shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Number four, another reason Christ died, to reconcile us to God, right? To reconcile us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 through 20. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There it is. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
not only does Christ's death allow us to be reconciled to God, but then God uses us to reconcile other people. It's crazy. It's like me taking my enemy and adopting them as my son and then using them to reach more of my enemies. That's what God does with us. He takes those that are in hatred and rebellion to them, changes their heart through the Spirit, saves them, adopts them, which is already crazy, and then uses them to reach more people so he can love and save and adopt more people. It's awesome. And number five, why does Jesus have to die? Now, this is something we don't emphasize enough in Christianity. We talk a lot about our own personal individual lives, and yes, and amen to that. We are individually saved, but here's something we usually miss. One of the reasons Christ died was to conquer the devil. One of the reasons Christ died is so God can reconcile the cosmos to himself. Look at these passages. 1 John 3, 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. God is about reconciling the entire world to himself. The gospel is a message about something about what God is doing, and we get to play a part of that. We're a small facet of that. God is defeating the devil. God is calling all nations to himself. God is healing the world, and one aspect of that is the fact that we, through repentance and faith in Christ, can be made a child of God, can follow him. But one of the reasons Christ died that I think maybe we don't talk about enough is to fight against the devil. Jesus' ministry is a full-on assault against the kingdom of Satan, It's a clash of two kingdoms. God's kingdom is set up in Genesis. Everything's good. Everything functions well. He looks at it and sees it's very good. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no problems. And mankind turns against God and in so doing gives our allegiance to the devil. That's what what Adam and Eve do when they reject God. A new kingdom now gets set up, the devil's kingdom. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air. That's why he offers Jesus all these kingdoms if he'll but kneel to him. There's a sense in which he has this temporary kingdom because mankind has rebelled against God. So when Christ comes to reinstitute this kingdom, it is an all-on assault. I use the, I use the uh, analogy constantly that it's like Normandy. All right, Jesus is assaulting the Nazi beachhead at Normandy. And that's what he's doing by binding the strong man. That's what he's doing by casting out demons. That's what he's doing by healing people. That's what he's doing by preaching the gospel. That's what he's doing by correcting the pharisaical self-righteousness. That's what he's doing in dying. That's what he's doing in being raised. There's a constant, huge, cosmic battle going on all the time, and there's never been a place where that's felt more tangibly than in the person and ministry of Christ. Okay, that's the death, the death of Christ. All right, we're going to now jump into the burial of Christ. Now, I didn't put anything, I think, on your handout under burial. There's a lot in the Bible that says Jesus is buried, okay? It's not that I left that out because he somehow wasn't buried. The Bible multiple times says he's buried. I just figured that you knew that. I didn't think we needed a bunch of verses to say he's buried. He's buried. In fact, throughout the history of the church, there's a very few debates on whether or not he's buried. There's debates on what his death means and what does it mean for him to be raised. There's very few debates on him being buried. But I wanted to mention two things about his burial that I think you'll find helpful, okay? Number one, his burial very much means that he really was dead and that he really does go into the earth. That's important. What did God make man out of? What was it? Dust, right? You are dust and to dust you shall return as part of that curse. God makes us out of the dirt. We're just these little dirt people. 
And, uh, and that's what Adam means, by the way. Adama, right, is dirt. Or, or clay would be an appropriate modern name. If it was a girl, maybe like Sandy or something. Uh, but we're from the dirt. And uh, part of the curse is that when we sin and rebel against God, that we will die and we will go back to the dirt. All right? That's why we traditionally, you know, whether you bury someone or cremate them, the idea is that they're going back. All right? They're going back to this state of being like dust. So there's something really important in Christ taking on our punishment and dying for us that he's buried, that he goes back into the earth, that he goes back into the dirt, if you want to think of it that way. Though it's a cave, that's the idea, is back into the earth. Everybody with me so far? The second thing you need to know about burial in the New Testament, which I think is really important, the Jews conceived of the following idea when somebody died. They believed that when you died, your soul hovered above your body for three days. Okay? For three days. That's what they believed. Okay? I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It sounds a little weird, but that's what they held. Okay? Now, so after three days, they believed that you started to decay. All right? Death had had its final victory, and your body started to decay. How many days was Jesus buried? Three. The idea is he really did die and he really was dead, but as Peter will say in the book of Acts, you did not allow your Holy One to see decay. Death didn't have the ultimate victory. Christ did because God raised him from the dead. Everybody with me so far? In the story of Lazarus, Lazarus, Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick and he waits. He doesn't go heal them right away. And how many days does it say multiple times that Lazarus has been dead for? Does anybody know? Four four days. The point he's trying to make to a Jewish audience is to say that Jesus is able to call back Lazarus even after decay has begun. That's why they're warning him about the stench, all right? Even after decay has begun, even after death has had its victory, Jesus is calling back Lazarus. So you need to see that kind of idea. Jesus really does die, absolutely. He really is buried, absolutely, but he has the final victory over death, not the other way around, okay? That's important for the burial. It shows Christ really is uh, did die, and Christ really was buried. He goes back into the earth, all right? Shown as kind of like a punishment for mankind's sin. Now resurrection. Okay, I have to tease something here, but this is all in good fun and good sports, so nobody get mad. I, uh, my spiritual gift sometimes is devil's advocacy. I don't know that that's actually one. Uh, I tell my wife it's sarcasm. I don't think that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians either. Uh, mocking, I think, is another spiritual gift I have. Uh, and as I say this, I'm realizing that these are very unholy gifts, maybe, that I have. So, the one I want to use, though, I want to I make fun of something because I think this is really, really important. Most of evangelicalism, when we think of what happens to us when we die, is not very biblical. You can just see this anytime you go to a funeral. Uh, Katie, my wife, her dad passed away while we were dating, and, man, people were saying some really unhelpful, crazy things to her. Go out there and talk to your dad like he's God. He's everywhere, I guess. He's omnipresent. All kinds of crazy ideas about what happens when you die. And so I just want to say something that I hope drops a huge theological brick on your world, and it's this. We don't stay in heaven forever when we die, according to the Bible. We don't. Now, we do go there to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's called Abraham's bosom constantly. Yes, we do. But that's not the end of the story according to the New Testament. According to the New Testament, there is a new heavens and a new earth, and there is a resurrection in which we all partake in. Everybody with me? Sometimes we have a tendency, and it's actually crept into, where does it come from? It crept into Christianity through Greek philosophy. Plato and Aristotle hate the idea of physicality, hate the idea of the body. The soul is seen as good, heaven is seen as good, spiritual things are seen as good, but physical things, ugh, gross. Get those out of here. We don't care about that. 
And that idea had crept into the church. So we have a tendency to think of heaven in very ethereal terms, very non-tangible forms. So we kind of think about it. So if, uh, and this is how I used to think about it before I became a Christian, is, you know, you would die and your soul, which kind of looks like a glowing ball, I guess, would float up into the clouds where you'd either become a naked baby angel, right? A little cherubim like you see around Christmas time. And there was elevator music playing. And it's a place where a golfer never hits a slice and a fisherman never misses a catch. That's kind of the idea a lot of times we have of heaven. But the Bible's extremely clear that God is about reconciling the whole cosmos. If God just saves your soul, you're not saved. He's got to redeem your body. God's plan is not to create the entire universe and then as soon as mankind sins, scrap all of that. Let's just get out, everyone out of here and just go to heaven. The goal is a new heavens and a new earth in which we are bodily raised. In the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem comes down to us. We don't go up to it. The idea is that in Eden, you had the realm of man, earth, and the realm of God, heaven, and they were together. God was walking in the garden with Adam. Those, in a sense, become separated because of sin. God is holy. He will not be around sin. He will not tolerate sin. So what you see in the book of Revelation is you see the two coming together again. You see the two coming together again. God is again walking. We don't need the sun. Christ will be the sun, all right, in this new city. That's the idea. But notice that it comes down to us. It's a new heavens and a new earth. So three things I want you to see that the New Testament teaches very clearly about resurrection, and then we're going to look at these passages. So again, I affirm heaven. Heaven does exist. We do go there. It's a waiting room, though, for a new heavens and a new earth. Okay? It's a waiting room. So to quote uh, a theologian I really like named N.T. Wright on the resurrection. Heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world. We're interested in life after, life after death, okay? So let's look at some things the New Testament's going to say about resurrection. Three things I really want you to focus on, okay? Number one is that it's an end times event. Again, I apologize for my terrible handwriting. I assume in the resurrection that I'll have better handwriting. I'll have a perf- perfect body. Uh, it's for all people. Okay, the resurrection is for all people. And lastly, it is bodily. Okay? It is bodily. Let me break down each of these just quickly, and then I want to show you so many passages. Number one, the resurrection in, the Jew- in Jewish thinking was something that was going to happen at the end of time. That's why the apostles are freaking out when Jesus is raised from the dead. That means the end has broken into the present. The Jews expected resurrection to happen at the end times. That's something at the very end, right before God reconciles everything and fixes everything. So Jesus is not merely resuscitated. It's not just that he comes back to life like Lazarus or a little girl that's healed or some different people in the Bible. He's partaking in that end times, capital R, resurrection, which will eventually happen to all of us. That's why he is called the first fruits of the resurrection. It's like there's a resurrection tree, and he's the first fruit to bud, so we know that more fruit will be coming. Okay? So it's an end times event. That's why the apostles are freaking out. That's why the end is near. Number two, it's for all people. It's for all people. The resurrection is not just the greatest miracle Jesus ever pulled or something like that. It's something that we're all going to partake in. Our hope is not in heaven. Our hope is in resurrection. Don't worry, I'm going to give you a thousand verses in just a second to show this. And number three, we're bodily raised. Okay? We're bodily raised. This is very important. It's not 
just that we have souls that go up, our bodies are raised as well. I'm going to show you some text about that. That's important. Jesus is bodily raised as well. We will be bodily raised. God is about redeeming all of us, not just half of us, to say it that way. Okay? We will be bodily raised. Creation and matter, despite what Plato and Aristotle say, are not bad. When God creates the material universe, he says it is good. It's sin that's bad, not matter, if you want to think of it that way. Okay? So I want you to see those things as we go through. That's very important. And uh, I want to look at a bunch of passages. I want to start in the Old Testament. Okay? In the Old Testament, uh, you don't have a lot of clear things about what's going to happen when you die. Now, you have hints, and we're going to look at some passages that even teach resurrection from the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, you have kind of a shadowy understanding of what happens to you when you die. All right? You've got two terms that occur constantly. One is Sheol. Sheol. You'll constantly see that in the Bible. David will say, don't abandon me to Sheol. Sometimes it's translated in your Bible as the grave. Sheol in Jewish thinking just meant the place people go when they die. It's not very well defined. It's shadowy. Sometimes in Hebrew it uses this term. Raphaim, which means the shades. Ha-Raphaim, the shades. It's seen as this shadowy place, and both good and bad go there in the Old Testament. All right? There's kind of a righteous part of Sheol and a bad part of Sheol. But it's, it's not fleshed out very much. You really have to, you get hints of eternal life. And you get hints of resurrection. You get hints of these things in books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah. But in the New Testament, it becomes much, much clearer what actually happens to you when you die. What our hope is in and these kind of things. Okay? But first, I want to show you some passages about resurrection from the Old Testament. I want you to keep these three things in mind. End times, all people, and bodily. About resurrection. Everybody with me? Everybody having fun? Do I need to yell? I'm more of a yeller. Jeff's kind of quiet. I like to yell. All right. Let's look in the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, 19. Maybe you've never seen these, by the way. Maybe you've never seen these passages. Isaiah 26, 19. In contrast to judgment, it says this. Your dead shall live. Plural, right? A bunch of people. All people. Your dead shall live. Their bodies, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. How about that? There's a good Easter passage right out of Isaiah. Let's look at this one in Daniel. Daniel 2, I'm sorry, 12, 2, in describing the end. By the way, the context here has to do with ideas of end times, eschatology. All right, so there's that right there. But let's look at this passage. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Many, end times, bodily, okay? Dust shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. By the way, in the Bible, everybody is raised from the dead. You're either raised to life or you're raised to be punished, but it will be bodily, all right? Okay, so that's some things from the Old Testament. Now, before we get into the New Testament, I I want to talk a little bit about the intertestamental period, all right? I want to talk a little bit about the intertestamental period. Um... Does anybody remember the name of the really bad guy that Jeff mentioned when we talked about the intertestamental period? He came in, and he was really mean to the Jews, and he was the Seleucid king. What was his name? Yes! Gold star for you, all right? A plus. Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which means a great one, all right? Manifest one. And the Jews jokingly called him, you know, Antiochus Epimenes, madman, all right? Because he was crazy. And uh, in the book, now don't freak out, let me explain this. In the book of 2 Maccabees, 
It doesn't belong in the Bible, all right? I'm not saying it belongs in the Bible. It does not belong in the Bible. I am a Protestant through and through, all right? But in the book of 2 Maccabees, the reason I'm mentioning that is because it's in between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, so it's helpful for us to see what Jews believed during that time. So it's not scripture, it's not canonical, it does not belong in the Bible. It's just helpful, it's kind of like if we were to read Greek or Roman literature. We're just trying to learn more about the culture. So in 2 Maccabees, uh, it tells this story of what Antiochus would do to these brothers. He took this family of seven brothers, and he was trying to get them to recant their Judaism. Literally, he was trying to make them eat pork. Eat this piece of bacon, and you can go free. Now, this is before Christ comes and fulfills the law, so at this point, it's sinful. Eat this bacon, you can go free. He's forbidding mothers to, be circum- uh, to circumcise their kids. Uh, he's forbidding these practices of Mosaic Jewish law that the Jews held to be sacred, Okay. And as he goes to this family, it's one mom with seven sons. I guess the father had died or something. One mom with seven sons. He starts torturing each of the kids before the mother's eyes one at a time, trying to get them to recant their Judaism and recant their faith in in God and instead to give in to his empire. So, for example, one son, he scalps, cuts out his tongue, cuts off his hands and feet, and sears him in a huge heated cauldron. Heats up a big piece of metal, scalps him, cuts off his hands and feet, throws him on there, lets him be burned alive. This is in 2 Maccabees. It's very interesting. And here's what one of the brothers responds, okay? So that happened to the first brother. He kills the second brother. When he gets to the third brother, again, I cannot emphasize enough, I don't believe this is scripture, okay? This is just helpful history, all right? Second Maccabees 7, 10 through 14 says this, after him, the third was the victim of their sport. When it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said nobly, I got these from heaven and because of his loss, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. As a result, the king himself and those with him were astonished at the young man's spirit, for he regarded his sufferings as nothing. When he too had died, they maltreated and tortured the fourth in the same way. And when he was near death, he said, one cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. So not only in the Old Testament, they teach a view of resurrection that's end times for all people and bodily, Even before we get to the time of the New Testament, this is already something the Jews believed. In this story, as this Jewish boy is about to be tortured, he says, cut off my hands because I'm going to get them back again. Cut out my tongue. I'll get it back again. I don't care. I know that God will give them back to me because he will raise me. But when you're raised, it will not be to life. That's what he's saying. So what I'm trying to show you is we see a consistent theme here in the Old Testament of resurrection, intertestamental period of resurrection. Now let's get into the New Testament, and there are a lot of these passages, all right? Again, I want you thinking these three things. End times, all people, and bodily when we think of resurrection. John eleven twenty three through 24 says this. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus is going up to heal Lazarus, and he's saying, he's going to rise again. And Martha says, silly Jesus, we're Jews. We know he's going to rise again at the end. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm going to raise him right now. I'm going to raise him right now. But that's already their assumption. The Jews already believed he was going to be raised at some point. So that's why there's this misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying by Martha. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and what? Body and hell. I've had a guy one time who was kind of a skeptic mockingly say to me, how can you be tormented in hell if you're just a soul? And I said, you're not just a soul. You have a body. You're resurrected. Fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. Bodily, right? Luke 14, 14. 
and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Talking about uh, inviting these people into your party and these kind of things that uh, can't pay you back. Saying that the resurrect, I'm sorry, uh, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In Jesus' teaching, he's saying, you will eventually get your recompense. You will eventually be paid back for the good things that you've done. When? At the resurrection, which is at the end, which happens to all people, which is bodily. Am I sufficiently beating this dead horse? Okay. 2 Timothy 2.18, talking about those who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Paul has to write and say, if anyone's teaching that the end times, all people resurrection has already happened, they're leading people astray. It's already begun in Christ, but we've not all been raised yet, which means, again, he still sees it as an event for all people. All right? He sees it as an event for all people. Matthew 22.30, talking about marriage and given in marriage. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. We're not like the angels in heaven in that we become angels. We don't become different kinds of creatures and get wings. The way that we're like the angels there is that there's not marriage. People do not marry or are given in marriage post-death, okay? That's what makes us like the angels in this specific passage. But his point is when he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry or are given in marriage, he's talking about an all people in times resurrection, all right? You see this over and over and over again. So I say all of that to just encourage you that, yes, is there a period where you rest with Christ while you're awaiting the end after you die? Yes. If your loved ones know Christ, they're resting with him now. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is a new heavens and new earth and resurrected bodies. All right? And by the way, what I'm teaching you today might be new to you, It is not at all new to Christianity. This is the historic orthodox position of all branches of Christianity, period, for all church history, up until the late 1800s when you got theological liberalism and some other things, all right? That's our hope. That's our hope. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Jesus' bodily resurrection. So we just saw, oh, wait, I've got one more passage I need to read. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I just get so excited. Isn't this fun? Are y'all having fun? I'm having fun, but I love to hear myself talk, so I hope y'all are having fun too. Okay. Philippians 3.11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul's wanting to remain faithful and keep his witness because he's wanting to attain to the resurrection, which means it's not just for Jesus. Jesus is just the first one to do it. We eventually will all be raised as he is raised or was raised. Okay? Now, let's talk about Jesus being raised. The first point I want to make here is Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. There's a sense in which uh, a lot of... So when I say liberal theology, let me explain what I mean. I don't mean something political, by the way. So when I use liberal or conservative in here, I'm not talking politics. Liberal theology denies the supernaturalness and the supernatural events described in the Bible. All right? So someone who's theologically liberal would say, maybe Jesus is just a good prophet, but he's not the son of God. Uh, He lived a good moral life as an example, but he didn't really die for our sins. The Bible's great and helpful for moral lessons, but it's not really God's word. That's liberal theology. All right? it, remo- it tries to keep Christianity, but remove all the important stuff we hold in Christianity. Okay? And there was a tendency uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s when people talked about Jesus' resurrection to act like it was just a spiritual resurrection. In the same way that grandma lives eternally in our hearts, so Christ lives eternally in our hearts. That was what they were saying. And that is absolutely the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Okay? He's raised bodily. There are certain songs I hate uh, when they're sung in churches. 
I hate the song, I'll Fly Away, because I just talked about how we come back in resurrected bodies. Uh, and I hate this one. So, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives, finish it, within my heart. Is that how we know Christ lives? Because of a subjective feeling? Because if there are some bones of this Nazarene Jew in Jerusalem right now, I don't care how you feel in your heart. Paul says that if he's not bodily raised from the dead, your hope is worthless. You're to be pitied most of all among men. I actually had a professor, when they sang that in his church, he changed it in, the grave he did depart. That's how they changed it, all right, to make it more biblical. So what I want to show you is Jesus is not just raised in some sort of spiritual, mythical sense. He's raised physically, physically, bodily, all right? Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. All right, so when he's going before doubting Thomas, he's like, oh, I won't be able to believe it unless I can just see his nail marks and put my hands there. So Jesus shows up and he goes, do it. Do it. I'm here bodily, physically. Put your fingers in my nail holes and hand in the side. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. He's raised bodily. We see it again. Luke 24, 42 through 43. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. All right, he's not just like a ghost or a spirit. Ghosts and spirits don't eat broiled fish. All right, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. This is after his resurrection. And he took it and ate it before them. He's trying to say, I'm raised bodily. Now, are there still some very miraculous things about Jesus? Yes, because he's God, right? So there is a sense in which, yes, he's absolutely seated at the right hand of the Father, and somehow he can be present when two or more are gathered. It's miraculous. He is God and man. But what I want you to understand is this is very much of a corporeal, physical, bodily resurrection. Ghosts don't eat fish, all right? They walk through walls and stuff. They're not material. Jesus is bodily raised from the dead. Oh, sorry, here's the passage. Uh, uh, sorry, the passage I read earlier with Luke, that's a different passage where he tells him to touch him. This was the one I was thinking of, I'm sorry. Uh, he tells Thomas to touch his resurrection body. This is it, sorry, in John 20. The other one, he was encouraging people to believe in him. John 20, 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. That's where he goes to doubting Thomas and says, touch me if you don't believe, all right? Touch me if you don't believe. Sorry, I didn't sleep very well last night because of the excitement. So I might say things that are wrong. Let's talk about the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. When we come together to celebrate Easter, when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we have a tendency to just think of it as a really cool miracle. Feeding 5,000 was really cool. Turning water to wine was really cool. Walking on water is really cool. And resurrection is just the most cool. And I want you to see that there's a bigger, deeper theological significance to Jesus' resurrection other than it just being miraculous, all right? Other than it just showing that he is the Son of God. I want you to see some of these things. That's definitely one, but I want you to see several. I've listed multiple meanings and the point of Jesus' resurrection with text. Number one, what does the resurrection mean? Number one, it means he is God's Son, the Messiah. It proves him to be who he claimed to be. If I show up to you and I say, hey, I'm God's Son, you should worship me. That's a bold claim to not back up with anything. God backs up the claims of Jesus at the cross, right? How do you know he's the son of God? Because Romans 1, 4, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or to quote one of my friends, Jesus is God's mic drop, all right? It's the last thing God has to say before he drops the mic and walks off the stage. 
Number two, another important point about Jesus' resurrection, it means that God accepted Jesus' offering for sin. How do we know that Christ's death worked? How do we know that death has really been paid for? Because you see, death comes as a result of sin. So when you deal with sin on the cross, you deal with sin's ugly twin sister, death, at the resurrection. Okay? How do we know that atonement has been made? How do you know that God's not mad at you if you're a Christian? How do you know that he has no wrath towards you, that he only has love and he only has grace towards you? Because the payment worked, and we know that because Christ was raised from the dead. Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning we now have access to God. We don't have to go through this priest. We have a great high priest, the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, was torn from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Romans six twenty three: for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? Through Christ's resurrection, we know that his payment was accepted and it worked. God accepted it. The bill is paid, paid in full. All right? You cannot improve and add to Christ's righteousness. Be as good as you want to be. Be as moral and upstanding as you want to be. Be as bad as you want to be. Everything falls on whether or not you're in Christ. That's everything. You're either seen as being in Christ and you're 100% righteous and you cannot improve upon it, or you're seen as separated from Christ and you're 100% wicked and you don't know God at all. There is no in-between, all right? Number three, another reason Jesus is raised, Jesus reverses the curse of Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, for since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Christ is the anti-Adam. Christ is the Adam that Adam should have been. When Adam rebels against God, you get sin, death, demonic oppression, thorns and thistles, pain and childbearing, separation from God, bad stuff. When Christ dies on the cross to pay for sin and he's raised, you get the opposite. You get love, joy, life. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He's raised from the dead. Adam, so Adam and Christ, the Bible sees us as being under one of two ambassadors. Maybe that's a good way to think about it, ambassadors. So uh, if an ambassador for the U.S. goes to another country and punches that president in the face, what does the whole country think of the U.S.? Not good things, okay? Uh, That's what Adam did. Adam is our ambassador. He is the head of the human race. Because we are all linked to him genetically, there's even a sense that we are all in Adam, and when he rebels against God, it, uh, because he's our ambassador, God sees the whole nation, if you will, the whole of humanity as broken and sinful and cursed. But by faith in Christ, now he's our ambassador. How did he do when he went forward from us in humanity to stand before God? He did great. All right? Jesus reverses the curse of Adam. Number four, Jesus brings in the end times. Jesus begins... And brings in the end times. When it comes to end time stuff, people get crazy, all right? Here's my one tip on reading the Bible about end times. Don't be crazy. That's all I want, all right? Don't hide in your basement with shotguns and put billboards on the sign of the exact day Jesus is coming back because he said you're not going to know, all right? Are we in the end times? Yes. But we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. I said this last time. The end times is a theological category for what happens when these end times events like resurrection start happening. All right, we are already and not yet in the end times. We're already there, but we're waiting for the consummation. 
As soon as people start getting up from the grave, like Jesus, the end has begun. So the end times is a very long period, if you want to think of it that way. We're going to talk more about eschatology and end time stuff later on, by the way, in this series. So that will be uh, a lot of fun. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Is near. All right? Why do they think it's near? 2,000 years ago. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purposes of prayer. The reason they think the end is near 2,000 years ago is because Jesus has been raised. That's an end times event. What did the Jews expect were going to happen at the end of times? Well, that Gentiles would get into the faith? Check. That God would send his Messiah? Check. That people would be raised from the dead? Check. These kind of things. All right? And so the end has already begun in Christ. It's not done. We're still waiting for it to be consummated. Like I said, we live in between D-Day and V-Day. We are still fighting Nazis. We're just fighting them in France. We are not to Victory Day yet. Number five, Jesus' resurrection allows us to be right with God. Jesus' resurrection allows us to be right with God. Listen to this passage. This is an interesting passage. Romans 4.25. He, that's Christ, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. What on earth does that mean? That Christ was raised for our justification. Here's what it means. And again, I hope this drops another big brick on your theological world. God justifies Jesus at the resurrection. At the resurrection, God the Father is saying of God the Son, he is my son, he's perfect, he is who he says he is. I'm lifting him up, though you have cast him down. I'm vindicating him. And what that means, that he's raised for our justification, is because Jesus is justified by the Father in the resurrection, everyone attached to Christ is seen as justified. God justifies Jesus, and therefore, subsequently, everyone who's in Jesus. And he evidences it by the resurrection. Okay? Number six. You see, the resurrection is kind of like, uh, there's a lot of facets here. The resurrection is like a diamond that you kind of hold up to the light, and as you turn, you see different cuts and sparkles and carrot and clarity. I'm trying to remember all the things I had to remember before I got married to Katie. I took like a class on diamonds. She later, we lost her wedding ring playing water volleyball. Uh, it was awful. There was, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, uh, but as you turn a diamond in the light, you get to see all these different facets. The resurrection's kind of like that. So we're seeing here the resurrection is not just one thing. What is Jesus, why is Jesus' resurrection important? Well, it's important for a lot of reasons. It shows that God has accepted a sacrifice. It means that one day we'll be raised. I mean, it's all these things. So let's keep going with some of these. Number six, Jesus' resurrection shows that sin, death, and the devil will ultimately be defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? The resurrection is a way that God is reconciling the world to himself, and we get to play a small part in that. Number seven, Jesus' resurrection shows that we live in a new age. Colossians 2.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. All right? It shows we live in a new age. Number eight, Jesus' resurrection, and just in case I have not hit this enough, Jesus' resurrection shows that we will one day be bodily raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 23, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Jesus is the first one to take part in that end times resurrection. And eventually, 
you will as well. How do we know that God will raise you? How do I know when I die, I just don't go into the, the dirt? How do I know when I die, I just don't go to hell? And it's because God has raised Christ and he will do the same thing with me because I'm in Christ. All right, that's our encouragement. Now, let's have somebody read. We're gonna have somebody read for us. Skip to the, uh, I think, last page where there's print where the Bible specifically is gonna talk about our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 44. Does someone wanna read that for us? Okay, Dan, go for it. Very good. So this is a pretty long excursus saying that we will bodily be raised as well. Uh, when it says, by the way, it's raised a spiritual body, that doesn't mean it's ghostly. That means it's, think spiritual in the sense of redeemed. That's the idea of being raised a spiritual body. Think like Holy Spirit, uh, not it's sown, because some translations will say it's sown a physical body, it's raised a spiritual body, and all of a sudden it sounds like you've gotten away from bodily resurrection. Don't think of it like Plato. He's saying it's sown natural, corrupted hurt because of sin, and it will be raised incorrupted. That's what he means by a spiritual body. So with that, before we get into questions, I want to end just really encouraging you guys. So I'll just tell you some of the things I struggle with and why the resurrection is really exciting and important. So I struggle, uh, one, I get really bad migraines. So I've got them my whole life. Thank God I haven't had, you know, very many in the last few years, but I've had to have two MRIs. I've had to, uh, be on medication daily for them. I mean, when I get it, my vision goes blurry. I throw up. I can't be around light or sound or anything like that. Like, I've gotten really bad ones. There was a time I was actually scheduled to preach, and I had to have a backup guy waiting in the wings in case I got real dizzy and just fell off because I had all these migraines. They would just drag my dead body to to the side, and he could keep going, all right? So really bad migraines. Um, I had to get, like I said, some MRIs. I had to get my brain scanned, which is terrifying because you lay in this big tube that sounds like when you used to call up, dial up for internet, you know, and it's got all these weird sounds and it's clicking. And, and then the, the doctor comes to me and says, well, we found a little blip on your brain, but we don't know what it is. <laughs> do your job. What do you mean you don't know what it is? I'm a pastor. I'll tell you what this passage means. When you see a blip on my brain, don't just tell me that. He's like, we've got a blip. You know what? Let's come back two weeks to do another one. And I'm like, what am I going to do for two weeks? I was freaking out. I mean, it was awful. Turns out it was a blip on the screen and nothing on my brain. It was a good, good chance to trust Christ. Some good sanctification happened that week, all right? So I get these really bad migraines. Let me tell you something I'm really excited about, that in the resurrection, I will never have another migraine. Uh, why? Because resurrected bodies don't get migraines. 
Uh, I struggle, as I've mentioned to, to some of you guys, I really struggle with anxiety. You would not tell just by, you know, me getting up here because, you know, I, I joke and sometimes I kind of wear a mask. Uh, but I really struggle with doubt. I really have had some dark nights of the soul. I had to resign my first pastorate because of thoughts of suicide and depression. I really struggle with anxiety. But let me tell you something I'm really excited about, that in the resurrection, I won't struggle with anxiety anymore because resurrected bodies don't get anxious. Our faith will be sight. I won't have to wrestle with doubts and these kind of things. I mentioned a guy that was at my, my first church was actually at a little farming community about 30 minutes northwest of Paris, Texas in a town called Direct, all right? We would say direct in America, but out there you say direct. You emphasize the first syllable. They said, watch out for a brown recluse spider. Uh, they'd say things like that, Detroit. Uh, they would emphasize the first syllable of the word as you do in the country. And uh, there was a guy uh, in my congregation that had lost his hand in a farming accident. Uh, he actually had, uh, had kind of just a little metal, metal hook, and he would play jokes on people, by the way, with it. So he'd be like at, uh, at dinner, and he'd ask the waitress, hey, can you cut my steak? She's like, I'm not going to cut your steak. And then he'd just throw it on the table to show him that he could. And she's like, oh, yes, I'm so sorry. And she'd cut the steak, right? But one of the things he was excited about was that at the resurrection, he'd have his right hand back. He'd have his hand back. So here's my encouragement to you. Whatever you're struggling with, the longest you'll have to struggle with it is until you die. That's it. Not only has God promised to never leave you or forsake you, not only has he promised that you don't have to go through whatever you're struggling with uh, by yourself, that he'll always be with you, but one day you'll die and you'll be raised and then things will be like Eden, only better. Things will be much better. So whatever you're struggling with today, worst case scenario, you struggle with it till the rest of your life. What is that? 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, 70 years, 90 years, depending on how old you are. And then after that, you don't struggle with it again because resurrected bodies don't get blank and insert your blank, all right? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it guilt? Is it shame? Is it some sort of physical ailment or mental ailment or psychological ailment? Whatever it is, one day there will be no weeping, crying, or pain. That's my encouragement. Our hope is not in heaven. Our hope's in resurrection that we'll again dwell with God like we're supposed to. There's not supposed to be this gap between heaven and earth. It's supposed to be like the new Jerusalem where God is with man. So that's my encouragement to you this morning, is that the resurrection gives us a tremendous amount of hope. It means all the wrongs will be righted. Everything that we're frustrated about, anxious about, God is going to take care of these things. That's my encouragement to you in the resurrection. Heaven will look a lot more like what you read in Genesis 1 and 2 than it does Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. All right? A new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, as the Bible would say. All right?